0: I wonder, have you ever received a gift that you really didn't want? What'd you do? A decade or so ago, my sister-in-law gave me a tutu for my birthday. She meant it as a joke. I did not think it was funny. I was embarrassed, she was embarrassed, we have never spoken of it again. A few years ago, People Magazine reported on a poll about unwanted gifts and discovered that 62% of Americans have lied about how much they like and use a gift. So if you have not done it, chances are someone has done it to you. (laughs) And that's not just about the moment of actually opening the gift. 55% of people confessed that they have taken an unused gift out of hiding months or years later uh, in order to show the giver, to have it displayed in their home, or to wear it to show the giver how much they liked it. I guess it's for that reason that we tend to not dispose of unwanted gifts very quickly in America. According to that same poll, the average person waits four years before disposing of an unwanted gift. It's awkward, and it's hard to receive a gift that we don't really want. Most of us choose to never tell the giver directly that we didn't want the gift, but I think that lots of times the giver can actually figure it out. (laughs) Have you ever been on the other side, giving a gift that you thought was perfect and find out that it's not appreciated? That's another awkward feeling, right? That leaves us unsure if and how to discuss the situation. I came upon this post on Reddit this week where someone was asking for advice related to unwanted gifts. And they said, I crocheted most of the gifts I gave this past Christmas. It was a labor of love. I spent months making everyone's gifts. One in particular, I made a tote bag. Took me the longest of any Christmas gift and I was positive the recipient would adore it. It was so them Christmas came the family member unwrapped the gift with a polite thank you proceeded to put it away and never use it I know for a fact it's just been collecting dust they said I'd be lying if I said my feelings weren't hurt to be fair though the gift was a surprise they didn't ask for it but I felt like they would really like it and like using it seems I was wrong that being said Since then, this person has explicitly asked me to make several other things for them. Normally I wouldn't mind that, they said, but I have a hard time feeling frustrated that they're asking me for more uh, when they already have something that I spent almost 40 hours on and they're not using it. So the poster closed by asking, what do you think is the reluctance to make more things for them an overreaction? What advice would you give the crocheter? How should they respond to the recipient of that gift who doesn't want the gift they were given but wants to ask for more gifts? Believe it or not, this post on Reddit is the exact situation that we have described in the Gospel of Matthew today. Who would have thought it? Good job, Reddit. We're spending these weeks of Lent with Jesus and his parables as we travel together toward Easter. We're listening to Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God and how to live as disciples. And one of Jesus' main teaching forms was the parable. He used these short stories, characters, and things drawn from everyday life to teach us something about God and God's ways. And you might remember that last week I said parables were meant to be conversation starters, not conversation enders. Jesus tells us these stories as a way to get the conversation started. They're not always straightforward lessons, and that's really the point. Jesus wants to invite us to wrestle with things, to give us space to apply his truth in our lives. And so that means that if during one of these sermons you have an idea about how these stories could be understood differently, I would love to hear that. The conversation about faith, the conversation about life, that, that's the point of a parable. Now, last week, we had three parables that were kind of ambiguous, they were kind of mysterious, they were hard to interpret. This week's story is more straightforward, but it includes another one of Jesus' favorite storytelling devices, and that is exaggeration. Jesus was never afraid of using hyperbole in order to make his point. He, he would make things sound so ridiculous so they would stick in the minds of his hearers. The verses before our story today, which Pastor Rebecca actually did a great job uh, summarizing for us with the children's time, they tip us off that we're going to be talking about forgiveness. Peter comes and asks Jesus, how many times must I forgive someone who has wronged me? And Peter, he thinks he's going to be really generous. He says, seven times. Is seven times enough? Right after the seventh time, can I just hold on to my grudges as long as I want? And Jesus says, no, no. Why don't you try 77 times? Or could read it 70 times seven times keep on forgiving that's the point don't grow weary in offering forgiveness to people who need it and then he tells this story this king wants to settle up accounts and first up is a servant or an employee who owes him an unbelievable amount of money the scripture says the debt is 10,000 talents Now, a talent was the largest unit of money in the ancient Near East. It was made, one talent was made from 44 pounds of silver. 44 pounds of silver, that's one talent. And the story says the guy owes 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 was the biggest number that could be written, so it's really like saying the debt was as big as it could possibly be. Remember what I said about Jesus liking to exaggerate. Now, if we wanted to understand that in, in money that makes sense to us. 10,000 talents was worth about 150,000 years of labor for, for um, years of work for a day laborer. So if we want to translate that to today, we could use the example of someone who makes $15 an hour, which is like $31,000 a year, 150,000 years of that wage, the guy owed the king $4.68 billion. Billion, with a B. That was his debt. How in the world did he wind up with a debt that big? Well, it's hard to imagine. Did he steal it? Or did he take a big business risk with the king's money and he failed spectacularly? Was he a cheat or was he just bad at business? Or maybe, maybe he was in charge of, of collecting taxes Like he was the the senior guy in charge and there had been a crop failure or there had been a drought and there were no taxes to give and now he was on the hook for the money. But even if that were the case, Jesus is making this an extreme example because the amount of taxes owed, 10,000 talents, that would be like the taxes from several small countries, okay? So $4.6 billion debt. The guy can't pay, obviously. The king says, sell everything he owns, put him in jail, put his whole family in jail. The man, he falls on his knees. He begs for patience and he says, give me time and I will pay. We all know he won't pay. He can't pay. It's $4.6 billion. He knows he won't pay. The king knows he won't pay. We know he won't pay, but he asks for patience. The king does not give him patience. Instead, the king gives him mercy. The king forgives the debt, all of it, all $4.6 billion just wiped away. What a gift. What an unbelievable gift. I imagine this man, shocked, dazed, stumbling out onto the street, still trying to process what has happened to him and, and how he's just been given his life back. Not only his life, but the life of his whole family has been saved from debtor's prison. And as he stumbles there down the street, a man comes, he comes across another servant of the king who owes him, he owes the first man, a hundred denarii. Now, denarius was, was a, about what someone would get paid for one day's worth of work. So if we're gonna use our $15 an hour conversion, one denarius equals $120, so the total debt here is $12,000. That's not an insignificant amount of money, but it is something a human being could actually pay off given enough time. As soon as he sees the first servant, the the second servant, the first servant comes up to him and confronts him, and the the scripture says he grabs him by the throat, This is aggressive. He says, pay me what you owe. And the second man falls on his knees and says exactly what the first man had just said to the king Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Now, when the first man asked the king for patience, he instead received something he wasn't even bold enough to ask for. He received forgiveness, canceled debt. When he is asked for patience, what does he give? He doesn't even give patience, he just gives judgment. He doesn't forgive the debt. He refuses to be patient. He throws the other man in prison. Now, wouldn't you know it, the word of this encounter gets back to the king. And the king is upset, tremendously upset, as we often are when we give gifts to people and they don't use them. The king orders the first man thrown in jail until he can pay his entire debt, the whole $4.68 billion, which we know is not going to happen. Now, to read this story, it's easy to see the first servant as nothing more than a wicked and rotten fool. And maybe that is the best way to understand him. But, but I like to try and be generous when I read the scriptures. So if I want to be charitable in my reading, if I want to suppose what he might have said to justify himself, maybe he would have said something like, you know, I can't count on the king's forgiveness again. That was a a once-in-a-lifetime moment. I have to make sure I have cash on hand for the next time I get in trouble with the king over something. I have to get that other servant to pay his debt to me so I won't wind up in a hole like the hole I just got out of. There is no way I can count on the king in the future to have that much mercy again. I have to look out for myself, and getting this guy to pay is the only way that I can be safe. Maybe he said something like that. From the outside, it's obvious that denying the second man even a small amount of forgiveness when he himself had received unbelievable forgiveness is the height of hypocrisy. But I want to suggest to you that this is the kind of thing that actually happens all the time. It's not that the first servant was unthankful. I think he was really thankful for the mercy he received. He just didn't use the gift he was given. He didn't use it. He took it and he tucked it away somewhere precious. He tucked it away and he never intended to pull it out and see it again. He had the gift hidden away in a place to keep only for himself. He didn't even think to use it. Or another way to say it might be, while he was probably really thankful for the gift, he refused to be transformed by that gift. He was not willing to let himself be changed, be transformed by the gift of forgiveness so that he could also become a person of forgiveness. The first servant, he walks out of the king's palace ready to live life exactly the way he had been living life before, where every penny counts and every cent matters. He didn't see that with the king's gift, the entire system of accounting had changed. He was only relieved that he had gotten out of his impossible situation. He doesn't ask the question, how does this gift change me? He refused to be changed, to be changed by grace. The first servant was relieved by the king's gift, but not changed by it. And that refusal to to change, to be transformed by the gift, that shows that, that he didn't actually accept the gift in the first place. Because, in fact, he refused the freedom, he refused the grace that the king's gift provided. The king's real gift to him was that he would never again have to count every penny or be worried about what was borrowed and owed, but he refused that. He turned away from it, and when the king learned about it, the king's grace was accompanied by the king's judgment, and the man wound up in jail. So this is a parable of both grace and judgment. And, you know, I I know us United Methodists, we usually like the grace part a whole lot better than the judgment part. We have a hard time sitting comfortably with the judgment of God. So I just want to be clear, it's not that the king changed his mind about offering his grace. It's that the servant refused the gift. He didn't let himself be transformed into a person of forgiveness and mercy. It showed that he never even understood what the king actually gave him. And refusing the gift in that way, well, that had consequences for him. The king didn't change his mind, he just saw that his gift was not wanted, it was wasted, it wasn't being used, it was tucked away in a drawer, and the first servant chose his fate when he refused the king's gift. This is crucial to understand when we read this parable about the forgiveness that God offers us. God doesn't offer forgiveness sometimes and then take it back some other time. Some commentators worry that we can read this parable as a warning that God's going to take back forgiveness of us if we're not sufficiently forgiving of others. But that's not how God operates. God doesn't take back forgiveness. We don't have to earn God's continued forgiveness by doing certain things. God gives freely. God gives freely. And because of all that God has given us, we are invited to live these transformed lives, to live lives that that are different in the way we operate in the world. God has forgiven us, and so, you know, we can leave behind the keeping of accounts. We can leave that to God. We don't have to keep a ledger. We don't have to hold on to every little right and wrong done to us. We also need to be careful to not read this as a parable saying, we earn God's forgiveness when we forgive others. We don't earn God's forgiveness. But God very much does want us to use God's forgiveness. Knowing we've been forgiven by God, God wants us to live these transformed lives offering forgiveness and mercy to others. To live any other way, it's to refuse that gift of forgiveness that God has given us. And when we we refuse that gift of forgiveness, we cut ourselves off from God. We isolate ourselves. There's a Catholic priest and a writer named Robert Capone who writes a lot about the parables, and this is what he says about this parable of the unforgiving servant. He says, In heaven, there are only un, there are only forgiven sinners. There are no good guys, no upright, successful types who, by dint of their own integrity, have been accepted into that great country club in the sky. There are only failures who have been raised up by the king who died that they might live. But in hell, too... They are only forgiven sinners. Jesus on the cross doesn't sort out certain exceptionally recalcitrant parties to cut them off from the pardon of death. Right? He's saying everybody in hell is just as forgiven as everybody in heaven. He says God forgives the badness of even the worst of us, willy-nilly, and he never takes back that forgiveness, not even at the bottom of the bottomless pit the sole difference, therefore, between hell and heaven is that in heaven the forgiveness is accepted and passed along, while in hell the forgiveness is rejected and blocked. Friends, the forgiveness of God is meant to transform our lives. Once we know it, once we realize it, once we embrace it in our hearts, it opens the doorway for us to never again be the kind of people who keep a ledger of rights and wrongs. It's a gift that frees us from having to count how many times we have offered forgiveness to others. It should change forever the way we look at and offer mercy to those in our lives who need it. Is that easy? Oh my goodness, no. Is it instantaneous? No, it's not that either. It's a constant evolving process for us to let go of the way the world keeps score and instead use the freedom that God gives us to never keep score again. God has given us the gift of love, the gift of acceptance, the gift of healing, the gift of restoration, the gift of mercy, and God has given that to us before we even ask for it. And God wants that to make all the difference in our lives. So may we be people who know grace, embrace grace, and share grace as widely as we can. Amen.